1: Hi, reader. I'm Cindy Burnett. Welcome to my award winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. On the show, I chat with authors whose books I have enjoyed about their new releases, and I give you a peek behind the curtain of the publishing industry with my behind the scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. If you're looking for a community of readers, bonus content, and a chance to read books before they hit the shelves, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group, which is filled with a wonderful bunch of book lovers. The link to join is in the show notes. Do you love to be in the know about upcoming books? Kelly Hooker of at Kelly Hook reads books and I do too. We couldn't find a comprehensive list of titles all in one place, so we made one ourselves and now we're sharing it with you. Our literary lookbook is a list of 182 books releasing from January to May, 2024, curated for our communities. The link to buy it is in my show notes. Today, I am chatting with Rashonda Tate about the Queen of Sugar Hill. The Queen of Sugar Hill tells the story from a historical fiction perspective of Hattie McDaniel, the first Black woman to win an Oscar. The story starts right when Hattie is winning the Oscar and goes forward from there. I did not know very much about her originally and felt that Rashonda did a beautiful job of portraying her story and everything that happened to her as the national best-selling author of more than 53 books, Roshanda has the credentials and the passion to bring stories to life. A highly sought-after motivational speaker and award-winning poet, she is the recipient of the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literature for her book, Say Amen Again, and was also nominated for her books, Mama's Boy and The Secret She Kept. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
0: Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a
1: path that clearly isn't the right fit? Welcome, Roshanda. How are you today?
2: I'm doing well.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so glad you're here. I loved The Queen of Sugar Hill, and I have so many questions for you.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you. That's good to hear. I
1: learned so much, and I was just fascinated by it all. Well, good. (laughs) Before we dive into my questions, would you give me a quick synopsis of The Queen of Sugar Hill?
2: Yes. It is based on the life of Hattie McDaniel, um, who was the first Black woman to win an Academy Award. And it was just about her turbulent life and how she really did think that the Oscar, winning the Oscar, would change her life. And it really just did not. Um, in fact, she found herself in the middle of two worlds, whites who did not like her because they felt she was too sassy as Mammy, and blacks who did not like her because they despised the stereotypical character she played. And it was it's just about her journey through all of that and persevering in spite of all the adversities placed in front of her. How did you get interested enough in Hattie to write about her? So I've always loved the historical fiction, but there was a time when I didn't, especially Hattie McDaniel. Um, when I was a little girl, I was watching Gone with the Wind with my grandmother. And honestly, I was disgusted. Um, I did not like the way that Hattie was acting. And I, my grandmother loved the movie. Uh, she asked me, what what did I not like? And I said, well, she's she's a maid and she's so over the top and stereotypical. And my grandmother said, well, I'm a maid and I've given you a good life. And she's playing the roles that she's that she can. And at that time, my grandmother even said, I'm a maid and she's playing a maid. And I thought about it. And my grandmother said, well, what would you suggest that she play? Would you suggest she be Cary Grant's love interest? Do you think she should be the president of the United States? She's playing the roles that she's allowed to play. And it was that time that I just got a new new love of Hattie McDaniel and over the years just immersed myself in her story. And I did. I write mainstream fiction. I wrote it for years and finally wanted a challenge and decided to go back to my first love. And that was researching Hattie McDaniel.
1: Well, I think she really was put in such a tough position. And it made me sad for her that more people didn't understand that. You just knew she was doing the best she could, she was playing the roles she was given, she was trying to be a role model, and instead she was just vilified.
2: Absolutely. You know, imagine this is all you're allowed to do. So people would rather you just went home and did it for real instead of played it on TV. Um, She has a famous saying, I'd rather play a maid for $700 than be a maid for $7. And, you know, she also really struggled with the fact that white comedians like Lucille Ball They could be silly, comedic, and it was not an indictment on the entire race. She did the same thing because she's an actor, she's a comedic actor, and now she's making the entire race look bad. And so she really did struggle with that, and and she wanted people to understand the good part of what she was doing. She believed on being a a civil rights activist, if you will, from inside the room. She felt like I have a seat at the table and I'm able to make changes by being in the room. And I wouldn't if I took this stance that I'm not going to play these roles because these are the only roles they're allowing us to be in the room on.
1: Exactly. And she was at least getting into the room, which is what you're saying, and winning an Oscar and doing things that no other black woman had done before. And I just really felt for her.
2: Yes. You know, and in spite of she continued. She did hope that it would open up the doors and allow her to have other more substantial roles. And of course it didn't, but she forged ahead. And she people don't understand, she still made a difference. There are some things in Gone with the Wind that she was able to get changed because uh, she was in the room. And so she wouldn't have been able to do that. The role would have just gone to somebody else. She wouldn't have been able to do that and get the life that she had that where she could provide for others and open doors for others. And I think the thing
1: that's really hard to understand for people sometimes is you have to put yourself in the context of these people and their time period, not in 2024, but what was happening in the 1920s and 1930s, and understand that it's not like it is today and that there's no way she could have just taken any roles she wanted because those weren't being offered.
2: Right. That's the number one thing that I want people to take away from this book is that we look at Hattie McDaniel, especially those that that dislike Patty McDaniel and Gone with the Wind and actors like her, we look at them through a 21st century lens. And when I took off my 21st century lens and looked at her in the time that she was, I had a better understanding and appreciation for who she was as an actor. I thought your book did a
1: wonderful job of doing that. She is a complicated person, independent of the role she played. I mean, she was a little complicated, I thought, but you created a sympathetic but balanced portrayal. And I really appreciated that. And it helped me understand it all a lot better.
2: Yes, you know, it, it, she's human. And so there are times where her impulsive behavior made things worse for her. And so I wanted to present this legend, flaws and all.
1: Exactly. And your, your point is valid. I mean, we're all complicated. We're humans and no one's all good or all bad or any of that. And so it was helpful to understand a little better what her life was like and everything she went through.
2: Yes, absolutely. That was the goal.
1: What was it like writing about someone so famous? Was it daunting?
2: So it was, you know, the first time I went to um, her house, I went and visited her, her house, which is abandoned now in Sugar Hill. And I stood outside and I took her all in and I felt her talking to me. My mother says, I need to stop telling people this because I sound crazy, but so goes the way of a writer. But I felt her saying, tell my story. And one of the things that I learned is that you cannot trust the internet because there was so much erroneous information online. And so I spent months, a total of three years really researching her and going beyond the internet because so much of the information was wrong online. That is fascinating. I guess stories
1: that began to be told then sort of took on mythic status and people just repeat them without really diving deep to make sure they're accurate.
2: That's correct. There, for example, everywhere you look <laughs> from Wikipedia to uh, articles on Hattie, they talk about her husband, George Lampert. But I go and I look for census records and I went to, and I couldn't find this George Lampert at all. And it turns out there is no husband named George Lamford. But what happens is someone wrote it <laughs> and then someone repeated it and repeated it and it took on a life of its own.
1: That's a good lesson for all of us to fact check what we find on the internet.
2: Absolutely.
1: Well, how did you decide what years of her life you would write about? This was so interesting to me.
2: Yeah. So when I first started, of course, I started when she was young, um, my first draft. And then as I was going through my I have a wonderful editor and we felt like most people know her defining moment was at winning that Oscar. And so after rewriting and rewriting, we decided to start there because that is the defining moment that most people could relate to versus doing a cradle to the grave story.
1: Well, and that's when she burst on the scene. So it was interesting to see winning that and then what that did for her.
2: Absolutely. You know, people think and that's true to this day that winning the Oscar can uh, change your life. But uh, it doesn't always. And she the Oscar curse was a real thing for all actors, um, black and white. It was actually coined earlier by an, a, a white actress. And Hattie found herself um, in that that category of having that curse where she could not find the work that she wanted and branch out like she wanted. And you mentioned a little bit of this, but tell me a little bit more about your research. So I um, went to research libraries. I spent time there going through court documents. Um, I reviewed letters. So I did a lot of uh, research in libraries. And then I do professional tools. I, of course, go to the internet and read everything, but everything I read on the internet, I would have to fact check myself three or four times because you'd fact check it with a place that had gotten it from the original place. And so both of them are wrong. But I finally had to tell myself, okay, stop researching and write the book (laughs) because I really did get just lost in the research because I, you know, I'm a journalist. And so it was a blending of both worlds for me. As a journalist, I was able to lay the foundation in facts. And as a novelist, I was allowed I was able to allow my creativity to come in and flush out the story. Well, and it must be so difficult
1: to do all this wonderful research and not include every single detail in your book.
2: Absolutely. And you really do, you know, (laughs) Hattie had, uh, she had a lot of guys, a lot of men in her life. And those were things, so I had to make those choices of combining those down because what you don't want to do is just be repetitious. You still have to keep the reader engaged. So when I took creative liberties, it was may have been to combine several characters into one just to keep the story moving along. Because, of course, her her life was larger than a 350 page book. Well, and you don't want it to read like an info dump, like, oh, my gosh, there's
1: more facts about Hattie. Here's another fact. Here's another fact. You do want to keep the narrative flow going.
2: Exactly. You want to tell an engaging story. And that's what I tried to do. And you
1: just referenced this a little bit when you mentioned combining characters and doing things like that. I'm always so grateful when an author includes an in-depth historical note, an author's note and explains some of that. So I understand what really happened, maybe some of the things that you altered for the narrative flow so that I know what, what's real and what's not. And I really appreciated that you did
2: that. Well, thank you. I feel that that part is, is crucial because, you know, a good historical fiction will send people down their own research rabbit holes. And the last thing you want is a reader thinking, you know, they've read some powerful moment in history and it was all made up and, and you know, they've spent their time looking to see whether or not that was true or not. So I just felt the historical note would explain to the readers where I took those creative liberties. I think that's exactly right. I
1: would hate to have quoted you on something and said, well, did you know Hattie McDaniel did this or loved this person? And then it wasn't even, it didn't even actually happen. So I think it's very interesting to to make sure I know what's going on, and then I also did go down so many rabbit holes. I was constantly putting the book down and googling.
2: Yes, you know and and I it's so funny because I never thought that I would do that until I really started doing historical fiction, but I do it all the time when I'm watching a true life story on lifetime. I will go a true crime story and then look up all the details, and so I was cognizant of that as I was writing that knowing that uh, the reader would want to know more about this particular incident. So that's why I tried to make sure everything in the book is rooted in facts.
1: And I appreciate that. And I know other readers do too. Thank you. What surprised you the most when you were writing this one?
2: It was definitely the erroneous information. Um, I wrote a whole chapter. Um, there's there's a um, a scene about a censor the person that was over the censor in the Atlanta and I wrote a whole scene on this a- individual based off all of these interviews I had done uh, it said it was a you know a man they had given the name that he was in scholarly books and everything but when I was trying to find more facts I couldn't find them and it turns out it wasn't a man it was a woman and the story was completely different and so those type of things shocked me a lot there was also the fact that I was like how did I not know Hattie the, what role she played in getting rid of restrictive covenants. You know, those that's huge. But th- that's a part of our our history, her legacy, that is largely untold.
1: Well, and that factors into the title of your story. So let's talk a little bit about that, her neighborhood, Sugar Hill, and everything she did to get rid of those covenants. Yes.
2: Yeah, so the neighborhood was initially called the West Adams District, and it was these fabulous houses, uh, considered mansions at the time and to today still, but they were beautiful homes. And there were um, some black homeowners that had moved in and the white homeowners in the area filed lawsuits. Now, they were successful in keeping some black couples out of the neighborhood. Restrictive covenant basically says that a homeowner agrees not to sell to anyone unless they are of European descent. So you can't sell to black people, to Hispanic people. And the man that sold Hattie her house, she offered $10,000 above asking price. And he, they're coming out of the Great Depression. He said, forget the restrictive covenants. And he sold the house to her and her neighbors sued. And so they tried to get all of the Black people out and they took it to court. It was a, a court battle that they, no one thought they would win. And ultimately, once Hattie came on board and, and lent her name to it, they emerged victorious. And then that case was cited as in the case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. So she helped in making it where... Black people and brown people can live wherever they want.
1: As it should be. And you depict a little bit of that, how rude her neighbors were to her, wouldn't even acknowledge her, say hello.
2: Yes, yes. You know, so imagine you're excited and you're moving into this neighborhood and you're thinking, OK, I'm I'm on your level. If I'm not above, you know, I, I have money just like you. And they didn't care. They didn't want her in the um, in the neighborhood.
1: I just never understand that. It's truly mind boggling. I know, I know. And
2: then the neighborhood eventually gets renamed Sugar Hill. It does. So they had, it was named after the New York uh, Sugar Hill. There's a neighborhood in New York. And so they kind of just picked it up from there. And it's been called Sugar Hill for years. And how did that become the title of your book? Because she was considered the queen of, of the area because of all of her efforts in fighting the restrictive covenants. And so our neighbors used to joke and call her the queen of Sugar Hill. And that's where I felt like that was a fitting title. Definitely.
1: And what about the cover? I love it.
2: Do you? So it's it's so funny because that's why you let the people that do covers do their covers, because I didn't know if I was quite feeling it when I first saw it. And my, my editor said, well, what do you really want then? And I said, I think I want a woman with her back to the, the cover. And then she sent me like 12 covers and she said, like these? I said, oh, OK, you're right. <laughs> Yeah. And so what I wanted was really just to what what they were going for was to show the progression, Hattie moving. And once she explained that, I got it. I was like, OK, I'm in love with it.
1: So I am sure all of my listeners are laughing right now as we're having this conversation, because I feel like I've been on a one woman crusade to get rid of all the historical fiction books with the woman facing away. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I mention it all the time. So they're probably cracking up like, oh, Rossonda's really opened up a little bit of a can of worms here. <laughs> because I feel like it is so overdone. And you know, every single book you pick up, not now, because I really yeah. do feel like that that publishers are doing a great job of breaking away from that. But I just like your editor or or publicist or whoever showed you those covers, it's so overdone. And I was just so tired of it. And I'm like, let's do some more creative things. So when I saw this cover, I loved it. And I felt like it really depicts. The, their, your story. I mean, it shows yeah. what's going to happen in a way that when I'm done reading, I look at the cover and I'm like, it's perfect. yes,
2: see, and and that's how I feel now. I'm so that but that's what I said. I love that they do what they do and and they tell the author, okay, we're we're getting your opinion, but at the end of the day, we know what we're doing because I would have been I would have been book number forty seven with a woman on the <laughs> with her back to the cover or book
1: five hundred. There are just right? so many of them. So, I definitely am happy that it is not that way, but you know, you still see a few of them and that's all good, but it's just nice that they're not all like that now. Right, right. Well, what was the highlight of writing the book?
2: You know, it was really opening people's eyes. The advanced readers have just said, I did not know all of this. So that is really a highlight for me to be able to educate and entertain people And really just um, have a whole new generation discover. I had a group of young people read it, and they were like, you know, all I knew was she was that lady that people don't like as Mammy. And it was I was able to shine a new light, and I really did appreciate that. Well, that is definitely the thing
1: that stuck with me the most and resonated with me, was that I learned so much more about her. I, I didn't really have feelings either way on Gone with the Wind, but... I knew about all of the conversations and people being so unhappy with her. And so I was thrilled to learn a more balanced portrayal of it all. Right, right. And who her friends were and how she functioned in Hollywood and how even some of these very prominent Black groups did so much to discredit her.
2: Yeah, the the NAACP convention of 1942 was, was heartbreaking when I discovered that. Because she did, she went to, it was their national convention and she went thinking she was going to be honored and to be called out the way that she was. They were well-meaning. They really, their intentions were, we want black people to be shown in a better light, but it was at the expense of actors, actors like Hattie. And, you know, so that was one of the things that I discovered really. I didn't know the vitriol that she faced from so many in the black community.
1: I agree. I did not know that either. And I think your earlier point about Lucille O'Ball compared to Hattie McDaniel is so interesting. And I hadn't really thought about that before, that Lucille can be silly and goofy and we're not all thinking she's representing our entire culture versus poor Hattie is portraying a person way you know, the way she feels is probably funny, but also important for that time period. And she ends up having to be the face of the entire Black community. Correct.
2: You know and she she actually would would mention that and there's a there was a famous uh, um, butler uh, he played a butler and everything Arthur Tegler so I think that's his name. and she actually wrote an article back then about people don't expect to see him and he opened his front door and he has a a, a napkin over his arm, you know <laughs> being a butler. but when they see her they only see Mammy and the maids and the servants and slaves and she really wanted people to know that she was more than Mammy. Absolutely.
1: Do you have a writing process? Do you sit down at a certain time of day, or do you write a certain number of words, or how does that all work for you?
2: I would love to say that I go sit in a mountain in Maine and create as the streams flow by, but you know, I had three children, and they had they could care less that Mama was an author. So my my writing process is really just to make sure that I write every day. I do. Um, my two two of my oldest are in college now, and so. I, I have a little bit more time because my teenage son, he he just tries to stay missing so because he knows you'll be ask him to do something. So he stays MIA. And I, I just utilize every spare moment. And that is one of the biggest thing I tell aspiring writers. Every minute you spend talking about what you don't have time to do could be spent doing it. And so that's how I'm able to write the books that I'm, I write. And that's how I'm able to make sure that I get my writing in because I know life will always get in the way. So I make time to write because it's the discipline of writing that gets books done. Absolutely. And as long as you have
1: something down on the page, it doesn't have to be perfect initially. It gets you started.
2: Absolutely. I always say good
1: books aren't written. They're rewritten. Absolutely. And editing is so important. And I think it's hard to remember that sometimes. Yes. So I always love to ask authors what they've read recently that they really enjoyed.
2: So I am an avid reader. Um, I, I read the gamut. Um, I, two of the books I love, I've just finished um, Denny Bryce's The Other Princess. It's a historical fiction um, novel. I love her books. But now I'm also reading uh, Frida McFadden's The Inmate. And then next up is uh, Pretty Girls by Karen Slaughter. So I love some psychological thrillers and historical fiction. Those probably are my two biggest areas. But my, my best this year would probably be Denny S. Bryce and the First Ladies by Victoria Christopher Murray and Marie Benedict.
1: I really enjoyed The First Ladies as well and The Personal Librarian before that.
2: Yes, definitely.
1: And I think Denny has a book coming out that she's co writing with somebody about a friendship between Marilyn Monroe and someone else. And now I'm blanking.
2: Yes. Um, and um, she and Ella Fitzgerald, it's Eliza Knight is the author that, that they're writing with.
1: And that looks really good too. I love these writing combos. Yes, it does. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, for Shonda for joining me today and getting to chat more about The Queen of Sugar Hill. I loved it and I can't wait for other people to read it as well.
2: Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. You have a good
0: one. Hello and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. conflicted a history podcast is available on spotify apple or wherever else you get your podcasts i hope to see you soon
1: thank you so much for listening to my podcast i would love to connect with you on instagram or facebook where you can find me at thoughts from a page if you enjoy the show please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one
0: therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about.
2: I'd say so. We
1: talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, Parenthood, and more. Subscribe
0: wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Coming up on Five Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.